This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Yishach Yaakov Malachim. Yaakov sent Malachim. Rashi says, Malachim Mamish. He sent real angels. Where do they come from? Last week's Pasha, Yaakov Halachudako, when he went, that um, the angels <coughs> went with him. So, I want to talk about the fight. The fight between between um, Yaakov Avinu and the Malach of Edom, the Malach of Esav. So it says the following, He got up at night. He took his two wives, right, Rachel and Leah, and he took his two shifchas, he took um, Bill and Zilpah, he didn't have Binyamin yet. Binyamin wasn't born yet. So when they bowed down to Esau, everybody bowed down to Esau. Binyamin never bowed down to Esau. And that's why Mordechai, when he came to Haman, Haman came from Esau, came from Amalek. He said, what do you mean you Jews are not bowing down to me? You bowed down to my great-grandfather. You bowed down to Esau. Who do you think you are not to bow down to me? And... Mordechai said, I don't have to bow down to you because my grandparents did not bow down to you because I come from Binyamin and Binyamin wasn't born. Spiritual DNA. Spiritual DNA. My great-grandfather didn't bow down to you. I don't have to bow down to you. Okay. So, so only 11 children. He went across this river. They came across this river. And he brought over, he says he carried... According to Rashi, he actually carried the camels. That's how strong he was, because they couldn't go through this deep river. So Yaakov carried the animals. He was very strong. Okay? But he was still scared of Esau. We'll talk about that soon. Anyway, so, so why did he go back? Why did Yaakov go back? He took them all over through the river, so why are you going back? So the Rashi says, he went back to get these little jars. We all went to his kids. He went back to get little jars to teach us that about tzaddik, money has a value. Money has a value. And therefore, even though he was very wealthy, Yaakov Avinu at this point, <coughs> leaving jars would be baltashkas. You can't just leave jars laying there. So by tzaddik, because he earns his money honestly, he doesn't gamble it. He doesn't leave it. He takes it very seriously. Okay? What was this jar? So it's brought down in the... I think it's in the Chidah, but it's also I know in the Medjish Rabbah that it says that the jar was like this. We see that when Yaakov Avinu, last week's Pasha, left his parents and was on his way to Lavan. So Eliphaz, who was, Eliphaz was Asaph's son, caught up with him. And he said that I'm here to kill you. I'm here to kill you. My father sent me Asaph to kill you. But Eliphaz used to learn with Yaakov Avinu. And Yaakov said, well, you know that we learned that the Gemara says there are three people that are considered dead even when they're alive. A blind person, a person who has no children, and a person who's very, very poor. He says, I'm not blind. I don't have children yet, but it talks about someone who's much older and doesn't have children. He says, but if you take away all my money, then I'm I'm considered like I'm dead. So why don't you take away all my money? And then go back to your father and say, I kept, I kept what I was supposed to keep. So it says that 
in the Medrash it says that Eliphaz took all, everything that Yaakov had. That's why when he came to love on love and kissed him and wanted to see if he had money in his mouth and diamonds in his mouth. And he checked his shirt and everything because when Eliezer came, the first time Lovin ever met a Jew, I mean someone sent by a Jew was, uh, was, um, you got fresh water? Thank you. Um, so, so the first time he met him, Eliezer came with all this gold and rings and nose rings and diamonds and so Lovin's like, oh my gosh, now, that was for my sister, now they're coming for my kids, my daughters, she must be very wealthy. And he checked Yaakov out. Yaakov had nothing. Zero. Zero. Because Eliphaz took everything. So it says in last week's Pasha that when, when he was um, dreaming that he woke up and he took a jar of oil and he, and he anointed a monument, a matzeva, right? He called it base kale. But if Eliphaz took everything, there is no oil. Where did he get the oil from? He didn't have anything. Where did he get his clothing from? So the Medrash says that he was totally undressed in a river because that's where Eliphaz left him. He couldn't walk around undressed. And that he was in this river stuck because he couldn't get out without any clothing. And a very rich um, Arabian prince came to the water and he got undressed to go swimming and he drowned. And, and because he drowned, there was no one else there. He took his clothing. That's where he got his clothing from. But that's not where he got the oil from. So they asked Akasha... Where did he get the oil from? Thank you. Where did he get the oil from? And the answer is, it says in the Medrash that that oil jar of oil was put there when Hashem created the world. He put it on Haram Maria for when Yaakov wakes up. But the special thing of this oil, you have to put it there in the beginning of the world, because this jar of oil, every time you poured it out, it refilled. So this was used to anoint Beiskel, it was used to anoint the Mishkan, it was used to anoint... Aaron, it was used to anoint um, all the Kalim, it was used to anoint David Amelech as king, it was used to anoint Shlomo Amelech as king, it was used to anoint um, all the kings of the Jews, it was used to anoint the base Hamigdash, all the Kalim, and that was, according to Bnei Sascha, I think brings this, Bnei Sascha says that was the jar of oil that when the, after on Hanukkah, which is coming up right now, that when the Jews were looking for a can of oil, the only can of oil that wasn't touched by the Greeks was this magical can of oil. And therefore, that answers the question, because really Hanukkah should only be seven days. They had enough oil for one day. If you have enough oil for one day and it lasts eight days, how many days of the miracle? Seven. The first day wasn't a miracle. They had enough oil for the first day. So why do we celebrate eight? Because this jar, when he emptied it, and the menorah on the first day, refilled on the first day. So it refilled itself for eight days. And that's why we celebrate eight days. That was the jar that Yaakov Avinu went back to get. I'm not saying that if it didn't do magical things that he wouldn't have gone back for it. But that was the jar that he went back to get. And everything that's in the Torah is, of course, for life, forever. So this fight, if we take it apart, this little fight, not little fight, big fight that he had, I think we'll get a bigger understanding in our lives. So it says, Vayivoser Yaakov Levado. Yaakov was left alone. He came across, his kids were sleeping, his wives were sleeping, everybody was sleeping. He went by himself to go back across the river to get these Pachim Tanim. Who's waiting for him there? A Malach. Who's Malach? Esav, the Satan. He's waiting there. But we learn from this, you're never supposed to be alone. Because that's when all the trouble happens. By When a person feels alone. When a person feels alone. When a person 
feels that there's no one there for them, they, they're lonely, that's when the Yitzhahara comes to get you. You're alone, there's no one here for you, why don't you have some fun, why don't you go out, you know? So he was, he was left alone. And that's right away. The minute he was alone by himself, that's when the Satan attacked him. The Satan could have attacked Yaakov many times. Why? Why, he, why is he attacking Why did he attack Avram? Why did he attack Yitzchak? This is because Yaakov represented Torah. And the Satan said, I don't mind if you do chesed like Avram Avinu. Because there are many, the Nazis were very into animals that the animals shouldn't suffer. Their dogs and all their animals, they were very into, like Pita, you know, all about the animals. They didn't care about human suffering. They cared about animal suffering. Sometimes there are people who do chesed, they're the biggest prasham in the world. Chesed doesn't mean you're a tzaddik. There are people who do good things, they're tyrants, they're dictators. But they do good things for, for the whales and for other things. So, he said, you can have chesed, I don't mind the chesed. You want to have gevura? You want to have inner strength? I don't mind the inner strength. Yaakov, you represent Torah? That's it. That I have to fight. That I have to fight. So by Yavasa Yaakov Levado, he's all alone, he's all by himself. That's the hole, that was the, the doorway for the satan to come in and to fight. The person has to know that you're never alone, you always have Hashem. Always have a shem. You're never alone. I had this whole discussion of this past Shabbaton. I had a Shabbaton in uh, in um, my high school Shabbaton. So it was very. My high school girls are very direct and very open. There, there's, there's black and white. They, they say it the way it is. And Charlie Harari was there. And we had like a three-hour open discussion on Matzah Shabbat. Myself, Charlie, and these girls, and we're talking about God. And we're talking about Hashem, we're talking about how you have to have Hashem. And we're talking about that when a person's in pain, whatever they're going through in life, that they need to turn to Hashem, not to drugs, not to boys, not to movies and things like that, but you need to turn to Hashem. And a girl got up and she said straight up, she said, when you're in pain, you need to get out of the pain immediately. And talking to Hashem is a process. Very smart kid. She said, talking to Hashem is a process. I said, you're 100% right. I had kidney stones. I didn't want no process. I was like, give me a shot now. Give me morphine now. I'm like, no, drink water, see if it passes. I'm climbing the walls. I'm like, now. Give me a shot now. I, I'm not waiting, right? When you have a toothache, chas for shalom, right? And you, which I've had many times in my life because I had a lot of work. So... Yeah, when you're in that crazy pain and you're dancing all over the place, you just got to get out of that pain. You, you, you're just banging your head on the wall. It's very nice to have Hashem. When you're banging your head on the wall because you're in crazy pain, you're not like, oh, Hashem, help me, please. You're climbing the walls. I remember I had kidney stones and I was rolling on the floor. You can't even, they say that kidney stones is worse, than, is, is worse or the same as birth. Now, I can't tell you that, because I never gave birth. But, I know someone who did give birth. A woman who gave birth, and she had kidney stones. Separately, not when she was giving birth. And I asked her, so you did both. What's worse? She says, no comparison. Kidney stones are much worse. And at the end, what do you have? A stone. You don't have a kid. 
So retroactively, it's much worse also. So I, I, I wasn't, I said, I told you, you're right. You're right. I said, Shafali, you're right. I'm rolling on the floor. I'm not saying Shira Mawis. I'm screaming. Call it solo. I'm going crazy. I, I, I'm, the pain is not, you can't even explain it. So she says, she says, says, very nice, but that's not, you know, it's very nice to get up as a rabbi and say, you know, you should, you know, when you're in pain, and these are kids who are in emotional pain, there's no difference. I mean, sometimes emotional pain is even more than physical pain. So she asked a good question. She said, in theory, it's very nice, rabbi, but in reality, it's not true. So if you're in pain emotionally, you take a drug, you smoke pot or whatever you do, you take a drug. So for that moment, you're out of pain. Does it fix your pain? hurting you? No. Doesn't fix what's hurting you. The morphine doesn't fix the, the the kidney stone comes out because you have to drink a lot to get it out. The morphine doesn't get the kidney stone out, but it's like you can you're alive again because it dulls the pain. So she's right. She's like, so I do so I do drugs or I cut whatever I do to get rid of that pain. I do it on the spot right away. I'm in pain. So I said to her the following. You're 100% correct. I understand that when you're in severe pain, you want now. But, if you have a relationship with Hashem, and that's something that you have your whole life, pre the pain, then it's different emotional pain. I understand that if you have the pain, you need to get out of the pain right away. But, if you have a connection with HaKadosh Baruch when you're going through emotional pain, it's a different it's, it won't be as severe because the most severe pain is the most severe pain is being alone and when you don't have a God and you don't have a support system you feel very alone and that's when the Satan comes and that's when the Satan starts to do what? now listen very carefully to what happens in this parsha. the word is and I'm not saying that I understand people's emotional pain. Don't, you know, like where I was, and if you knew what I'm going through, I don't. I had physical pain. I never had severe emotional pain. And Baruch Hashem, I was married at a very young age, and I had parents. So I was never lived, I never felt, never went into my room and felt being all by myself. I do not understand that feeling. And from what I hear, it's a very tough struggle to be alone and we know from the Torah that it is the hardest struggle because HaKadosh Baruch Hu looked down at Adam and said Lo Tov it is not good for an ish for a, for a person to be alone so if God can make a statement when he created the world at the end of the day a human being it's not good for him to be alone that means it's very painful and that's why he created Chava he only created Chava that Adam looked around Hashem. You can't say Hashem thought he made a mistake, but he, the animals were supposed to keep him busy. And because he just couldn't connect, he couldn't have a relationship with animals, he tried. She brings down the measure, she tried with every animal to have a relationship. Couldn't have a relationship with an animal. Because Boku said, I see that loneliness. I have to create someone that you shouldn't be lonely. And that's why it was such coffee toy for him to throw back at God. The woman that you gave me that I shouldn't be lonely, she gave me to eat from the tree. Oh, Hashem said, I gave you, I gave you something you shouldn't be lonely, you're throwing it back in my face. That's why he, that's why he got punished. So I'm not telling you here, I'm sitting here and telling you that I understand what it means to go home and go to your room and be alone. I don't understand what that is. I never lived that. I never lived that pain. I don't know that pain. I know physical pain. 
had an emotional pain as a kid, but that wasn't that kind of, you know, I don't understand that. But I do understand that the Sahara, and that's when he shows up. I know a girl, she was from her whole life, and she's 40-something, and me and my wife know her very well, and we took her home from a wedding. She needed a ride from the city, whatever, we were at a wedding, and I'm driving on the FDR drive, I remember exactly, and she said, Rear Walton, can I, can, can I say, can I tell you something? I'm like, sure. She goes, but you're not going to judge me? I'm like, I don't judge people. It's not what I do. Hashem will judge you. I don't need to judge you. And Hashem knows your inner feelings. He knows your struggles. So you're going to get a good judgment. You're going to get a fair judgment. I don't, I'm, I'm a human. I don't know anything. So I said, no, of course I'm not going to judge you. She goes, you know that I was Shem Shabbos and from girl. I said, of course. She goes, I'm not Shem Shabbos anymore. I said, whoa, what? She goes, nope. She goes, I'm 40, 46, 45, 45, I'm alone since I'm 20 years old. It's 25 years, I go home, my bed, I'm alone in my room. Every Friday night, I go to someone's house and they do me a favor. I got fed up with going to people's houses that were not my family. Um, and I decided every Friday night that I'm just too lonely and I go to clubs to meet people. I said, ah, I'm not judging you. I, don't, I can't judge you. So it's very painful. I, I can't imagine what it is, but I know that it's very painful. What, was the, what happened when Yaakov Avinu was alone? What happened? Now, this Ish was a Malach, was a Satan, and he fought with him. They had this huge fight. We're going to try to decipher what this fight was, but Vayavik doesn't mean to fight. It should say Vayilachem Ish Imo. And a man went to fight with him, went to war with him. Vayavik comes from the word Avak. The Shoresh of the word Vayavik is Avak. Avak is dust. So, if I was to come into the room tonight and tell you, you're not going to believe what I saw outside today. There were these two guys, huge guys, and they kicked up a lot of dust. You're like, what? There was dust all over the place. You'd be like, what, Rabbi? What are you, what are you, what are you saying? You're like, what? No one vacuumed? Like, what's going on here, right? I would say there were two guys, they were killing each other. They were punching each other. They were fighting. So the Torah over here is telling us that they had a fight, and instead of telling us about the fight, it's telling us a detail that while they were fighting, says Rashi, dust came off the ground. Who cares? So they got their, they, they went, they went and got their shoes polished afterwards, like why? So it was dust. Well, they went home and their, 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 their mother was angry at them that their, their jacket was dirty. Who cares that there was dust? Why are you telling me this detail? You should say, by you lachem. They were fighting with each other. Not that they kicked up dust. Not only that, the Medrash says that this dust went all the way to God's throne. There's no way that there's any dust on this earth that can reach God's throne. How's it getting to Shemayim? Seven Rikiyas, dust. But the Medrash says that the dust reached God's throne. So what's happening over here? It's very deep what I'm about to tell you, but it's very true. 
So, and I've spoken about this before. I'm just going to go a little deeper tonight. So the Sutta knew he was Esav, and he knew that Yaakov. He knew that Yaakov got a bracha from his father. He knew that Avraham Avinu was guaranteed that the Jewish nation would never ever be destroyed. So he wasn't fighting Yaakov to kill him. Where did he punch him? Does anyone know where he punched him? He hit him in the groin. You don't kill someone. You could cause a lot of pain by kicking someone or hitting someone in the groin. The person's going to fall over and have a lot of cramps. But you're not going to kill him. You want to kill him, you hit him in the head. This guy's a malach. Why don't you hit him in the head? What do you hit him in the groin for? Hit him in the thigh. So the thigh and the groin is the representation of future generations of children. So the malach said to Yaakov, I know I can't hurt you. You're Yaakov Avinu. But I'm going to take out your children. Now, what happened to Yaakov when he hit him? He, the Torah tells us exactly what happened. He dislocated his thigh. That's what he did. He didn't break anything. He didn't make anything bleed. He didn't choke him. He didn't karate chop him. He caused a dislocation. What's a dislocation, everybody? I said this last night to the boys. What's a dislocation? Someone dislocates their elbow or dislocates their shoulder. Is your shoulder still in your body? Yeah. Is your elbow still in your body? Yeah. It's just out of place. It's not in the right place, but it's still there. The Satan knew he could not destroy us, but what he was looking for was a dislocation in the year 2015, or Tafshin I involved, to take us, and though even though we're Jews, we're part of the body, and you're going to be Jews. Hashem said you're going to be here until Mashiach comes. But I want to dislocate you. I want to separate you, right? You're dislocated from Yiddishkeit. How do you do that? How do you do that? With dust. I have 60 girls in seminary. In two different classes, there's 30 girls in each class. Monday morning, I walked into class. I wanted to do it here, but some of you know my shirim, so you're going to like cheat. But you know the answer. But they didn't know my, they did, they were, they did not know the answer. And I, I walked into the first class and I said, today we're talking about beauty. They were like, whoa, that's a good subject. I'm like, but not what you think. I'm like, tell me what in this world is beautiful. So I have three top answers. I've been doing this for years. So the first girl I asked said, I knew it was coming. Flowers. Number one answer, you take a room of 20 people, your number one, or 60 people, 100 people, your number one answer, about 30%, 30 out of the 100 are going to tell you, flowers. A rose, a tulip, specific flowers or all flowers. Okay. I went around the room, second, second is what? Sunrise and sunset, exactly. Number two. Number three surprised me a little bit. Number three, the ocean. The ocean is beautiful. Water, Niagara Falls, water is beautiful. Okay. And some girls said clouds. Some girls said people. Some girls said some certain animals. Some girls said birds. We had different answers. I went upstairs to the other class, 30 kids. Same thing. Same thing. 
And then I asked him, what do you think of this world is ugly? I never did that before. This was the first time I ever did that. And most of the girls answered bugs. Bugs. I said, okay. Cockroaches, spiders, right? Which I was very happy to hear that. Because that's not, you know, that's not so condescending, even though there's a beauty to every animal. But it's hard to find the beauty in a cockroach. Okay. So, what was I doing? These are from girls. These are good from girls. Solid girls. From solid schools. I said, 60 girls. Not one of them answered Shabbos. Not one of them answered Sneas. Not one of them answered Yiddishkeit or Judaism. And nobody answered God because the way we're taught, God's not beautiful. God is some mean person, not person, whatever, creator, that sits upstairs and punishes you and burns you and puts you in Gehenna and punishes you down here and you get sick and people die and people get cancer. That's God. That's, that's how we think of God. Nobody, since I'm teaching 37 years, and I have to say myself, nobody thinks of God as beautiful. Nobody. And when you, when you hear the expression of Yechazkel, what he saw, whatever it is, the word, the Lushan, I don't have it in front of me, is beautiful. When he writes in the Via Yechazkel, where he sees the Markavo, you know, he sees whatever he sees of Hashem, whatever it is. The Gemara says that Rishmal Kain Gadol was so beautiful. He was so beautiful because he was a Gilgal of Yosef HaTzadik. And Yosef HaTzadik was drop-dead gorgeous. And the Torah doesn't call a man ever, ever, Yifas Mara. Ever. Yeah, Rachel, says Yifas Mara. No man was ever called Yifas Mara, except Yifas Toa, except him. Yosef was very, very beautiful. He was a Gilgal of Adam Arisha. He was so beautiful that the, 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 the wife of Eliphaz, which is coming, I mean, the wife of, uh, what's called next week of Potiphar, she, she was so sick, she was anorexic. Which we have anorexia in the Torah. She didn't eat. And her friends were making fun of her. You don't eat. You're, you're turning it to skinny bones. And she said, I can't eat. This is guy. And I want him and I can't get him. And he's so gorgeous. And are you crazy? You have some Jewish slave. You can't eat over a Jewish slave. She says, really? And the manager says that she took her friends and she put them in a circle and then she gave them all a shrugim with a knife. They used to eat a shrugim. That was their, like their oranges. And they put Yosef Atzadik in the middle. And they just sat there. They never saw anything like it. And they sat there. And the Medrash says that they were cutting the, they were cutting the esrig. At the same time, they were cutting the tops of their fingers. And their hands were all, there was blood running down all their hands. Medrash says. And she said, stop! She says, look at your hands. And they looked at their hands. They were all bleeding. She said, so you, you, you're, you're wondering why I can't eat? That's what it says. And he got punished. Israel Tzadik got punished. I talk to the boys about this all the time. He came back as the Gemara says that Rabbi Yishmael Kain Gadol, who was so beautiful, Rabbi Yishmael Kain Gadol, that when they did that Sarugamachus, we say this when we say Sarugamachus, that the daughter of the terrible king that was killing all, the, all of them, she said, him you got to let live. I never saw such beauty in my life. And her father said, I can't let him live, but I'll tell you what I'll do for you. We'll peel the skin off his face 
and we'll stuff it like you know they stuff the deer heads taxidermy it's called taxidermy said we'll stuff it and you can have him in your room you can look mamash at his face and when you say that sorry Rugamach on Tishabov and on Yom Kippur and this is where I cry my brains out right they peel his face they, imagine alive alive they peel his whole face off and when they come to his forehead where he wore his tefillin he lets out such a scream because at that point he can't wear tefillin anymore he let out such a scream that the whole world shook and the Malachim said Zu this is how you reward how you were Tyra and Hashem said if I hear one more word I will destroy the whole world so the Gemara says whatever this means that Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Gadol was so beautiful that whatever it means he had a, one millionth of a percent of what God looks like so the Gemara expresses his beauty expresses what God is, is God is a million times more beautiful but he's beautiful was the last time your teacher in school got up and said, God is beautiful. God is powerful. God is vengeful. God can do anything. The last time that we were taught that God is beautiful, that Sneas is beautiful, that Shabbos candles are beautiful. It's a mitzvah. You have to do it. It's not beauty. A woman is beautiful. A car is beautiful. A chandelier is beautiful. A diamond is beautiful. A house is beautiful. It's is. Fill in. Tzniyas. Whoever got up in a class and said, Tzniyas is beautiful. And, and I had this whole discussion. It was a pretty wild, pretty unbelievably, unbelievable shot to the Shema of the Shabbos with the girls. Unbelievable. So, so they were sitting around the table Friday night and I said, what's Tzniyas? What's Tzniyas? Why does a woman have to dress Blow your knees, you have to have your, your elbows covered, and when you get married, your hair covered. What's, what's the deal? Why does a person have to be snowed? So every one of them rose their hand, because men are animals. Because <laughs> you can't be attractive to men, so you gotta cover your hair, cover your legs, cover everything. I said, you are so wrong. If you think that sneers is based on men, you know, making yourself attractive to men and they're going to have bad thoughts. I don't, want to, I don't want to disrespect anyone here in the room. But when my grandmother was 98 years old, if she would have gone sleeveless, I don't think it would have attracted any men. She's not alive anymore, so she can't smack me for that. But a 98-year-old woman, a 100-year-old, will go that way, right? 100-year-old woman, she can wear pants. If the whole reason is that a bunch of guys are going to look at her and have all these evil thoughts, nah, sorry. At a certain point in life, guys are not having evil thoughts looking at that woman. 105, whatever you want to say. And why isn't the woman allowed to wear pants at home when she's alone? You're in the house, there's no guys, even your husband's not home. Why, if you want to say your husband, which could see you like that, but let's say not, right? So why can't you wear pants? You go home tonight, wear, put on pants, put on a pair of pants. Nobody home, put on a pair of pants. You're a single girl, go into your room, put on your pants. Put on unsneeze, stick of clothes, whatever you want. Put on a bathing suit, whatever you want. Who cares? There's no men. So you're not doing anything. If the whole reason is you can't be, you can't get dressed like that because it's provocative and it's going to make men have bad thoughts. If there's no men, so why do you have to be a snua? A lot of women in the from bungalow colonies, when they go to the pool, at the pool their hair is covered. If you're a from bungalow colony, you don't sit at the pool with your hair uncovered. Your hair is covered in a snood. When you go into the pool, of course, you take the snood off. But you have a house coat. 
don't lay there in, in like that. You're covered. When you go into the pool, you uncover yourself. What do you mean? It's only women. There's no men there. So why, 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 why do you have to cover your hair? I said, it's a very big, big misconception. Tznius is not for men. Tznius is for you. You can't see yourself in your house, in your room alone, in pants. You can't see yourself alone in a room not dressed correctly. The Gemara talks about a woman who had seven children, seven boys. They were all Kahanim Gedalim because the walls of her house didn't see her hair uncovered. Where's the man in that picture? She was a Tznuah. When she was alone by herself and there was no one there, she was a Tznuah. The best explanation I ever heard about a woman's modesty, I didn't hear. I actually said it. I don't usually talk like that, right? But I have never in my life come up with something I think smarter, and it only happened because of something that I did, and I think this is the answer. And I told it to these girls. I love paintings. I'm very into paintings. So when I bought my house, every wall that was empty, I wanted to put a nice painting on it. So I bought in a gallery in Eretz Yisrael a very, very expensive Tchulkin, which is a famous Russian painter. It's huge. It's huge. It's, it's as big as that hole in the wall there. Huge. Huge painting. Very costly. Okay, that time I was doing really well. So I came back to America. You don't, you don't frame the painting and then carry it on the plane. That's not what you do. You take, you bring home the canvas and you buy the frame here. So I come to the frame store and I'm like, I want the biggest frame. I want it like heavy gold wood, then cloth, then mirror, then cloth, then the painting. She says to me, what kind of painting do you want to put in this frame? I'm like, it's crazy, crazy to choke and very, very expensive. She says, do you want the people to look at the frame? Or you want the people to look at the painting? She said, if, it, if, it's, if it's a cheap painting, you get a big frame, very fancy frame. Because then it looks like real. But if you have a nice painting, just get the thinnest frame that you can around it. The painting speaks for itself. Hmm. That's a thought. So the girls in school go to the MoMA. That's the Museum of Art that everyone has to go. Culture, art, right? You can, you can look at stuff that you would never let, let, ever in a million years let into your room or on your phone a picture, such a picture, or in your house. But they sold us, the Sultan sold us because of the Aveg. He put dust in our eyes so we could look at p- pictures of people that are totally not dressed and sculptures of guys that are totally not dressed. And you walk through them, you don't have a problem with it because right off it's culture. I have that culture you would never bring into your house. You would never get married. Put such a painting in your house. Are you out of your mind? So, what, so I can't fight culture because people say, well, you're, you're a caveman. You know, it's like Zumba. You know, I'll be all over the news. But the truth is, where do you have a right to look at guys that aren't dressed because it's a sculpture? Just because they say it's culture? You're not bringing that into your house. Right? Not a picture you have on your, on your, your screensaver. But they all went because not in my school. Whatever. School in Manhattan. Whatever. The school went and they went and I was speaking there the next day. They, they changed my schedule. I was supposed to be that day. They forgot that they were going to the moment. So I talked about it after that, after that day. I said, like, knew everything was, like, sneers. They're like, rabbi. I was, in, I was blushing. There were these sculptures of guys. Oh, my God, I was blushing. I'm like, okay, great. 
Yeah, you went because it's culture. But anyway, I said, Sanu, you saw some crazy paintings by some of the biggest, Picasso, Monet, crazy paintings of the most expensive, unbelievable paintings, abstract. I said, girls, could you tell me the Picasso, the one that, the real big Picasso, the one that's worth who knows what, can you tell me what the frame looked like? Like what? I'm like, what did the frame look like? I'm like, I don't know. Of course not. You think the teacher? You think the guy in the gallery was explaining the frame? He's about the paint and the way it's brushed. And you know who Picasso was? And you know who Andy Warhol? And you know all these guys, all these great painters and that and that. Do you know who they were? And they, who looked at the frame? Whoever went to art school and sat in the class with the like, okay, we're now going to talk about frames. They don't teach you about frames in art school. Frames are not art. Frames are used to hold the art. That's it. Now imagine you buy a hundred thousand dollar painting. You spend all that money, you got yourself this really beautiful painting in your house. And then you go and you buy a six thousand dollar frame. Huge frame like Robert Wallstein wanted to buy mirror, material, wood. Gorgeous. And you're like, I'm going to show off. People are going to come to my house. They're going to see this crazy painting that I bought. I just, I just paid a lot of money for it. Chagall. It's a $150,000, $200,000 painting, right? And the people walk into your house and you're like, hey, check out what I just bought. And they're like, wow, what a frame. That is gorgeous. I never saw such a frame. You're like, I spent $250,000 on the painting. I spent $6,000 on the frame. And everybody's looking at the frame. What's that guy going to do the next morning? Run back to the frame shop. Get this frame off. Just give me a cheap piece of metal. I don't want them looking at the frame. I spent $250,000 on a painting. That's this. That's this. The painting is not your body. The painting is your soul. The painting is your personality. The painting is who you are. God painted. He took from the, under his kisya covered, under his kisya covered that he's throwing dust on, that he's avak, the avak went all the way up to the kisya covered. Under that kisya covered that this satan is throwing dust on is you. And he sends us to shove it down to this world, this Picasso, this Tahavdo, this, 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 this Leonardo da Vinci, this unbelievable crazy painting which is each one of you. And he brings it down to this world. And then we're so busy, right, with the frame that people should pay attention to the frame. So when you're not sneistic, what you're paying attention to is the body, which is, happens to be downright ugly, downright ugly human body. We don't got no fur. We don't got no colors. We're no leopard. We're no zebra. We're not even as pretty as a squirrel. Squirrel's a nice little furry thing with a nice little tail. I told, the, I told the kids today, I said, if human beings would, would get undressed totally and you'd put them in cages in a zoo, there's not one animal that would come visit. Are you kidding me? I got leopards and tigers and, 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 and giraffes. Well, look at that. That's just the frame. The human body is just the frame because the soul can't come into this world. This beautiful painting can't come into this world without a frame. A painting on the wall needs a frame. But the problem is that we're so busy with the frame and everybody's looking at the frame. They're not getting to see the art. They're not getting to see the picture. So a woman who's considered 
on a much higher spiritual level than a man. And I'm not going to get into it tonight, but there are many proofs to that. Right? So when she uncovers herself, she's showing the world the frame. Instead of focusing on the art. And that's the problem. The problem is to uncover the animal part of your body covers up the spiritual part of your body. To cover the animal part of your body uncovers the spiritual part of your body. The, the picture that has a teeny little frame is not covering up the painting. It uncovers the painting. But if you're going to put a crazy big frame on it, you're pretty much covering up the painting and the attention is given to the frame and not to the painting. I think that is the best way to explain what it means to be tznuah. And the mistake that many girls make is that the attention that they're getting, right? Bottom line, and you know, we're very open in my school, my high school. Bottom line is, Rabbi Wallstein, you, 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 you talk metaphorically. The bottom line is, five girls walk into a room, two of them are dressed with short skirts and, and, and very provocative, and the other three are dressed extremely sneers with very long, loose clothing. The guys are looking at the two girls that are provocative. So it's very nice, Reverend Wallstein, with frames and pictures and all that. At the end of the day, the guys are giving attention to the girl who's not sneistic. Right? And I'm like, that's right. You know why? Because those guys didn't go to art school. Those are a bunch of guys off the street. Yeah, you take a bunch of guys off the street and you bring them to the MoMA and there's this beautiful, crazy frame which is worth $2,000 and it's framing a D'Angelo which is worth who knows what millions. They're going to go like, hey, check out the frame, man. I don't know what that picture is, but wow, look at that frame. It's gorgeous. Yeah, the street people, that, but the person who went to art school and understands the art, they're like, frame? I don't even see the frame. Look at that painting. So you're right. The guys who are paying attention to the tour are not snua, they're peasants. They have no idea. They, have no, they only know the physical world. They have no idea what the spiritual world is. They have no idea what the emotional world is. And then people don't understand. The girl doesn't understand. I married him. He's an animal, Rabbi Wallace. He's an animal. He goes out every night. and de- I'm like, you sold him animal, so he bought animal. That's an animal. That's what you were selling him. So what did you expect? You have a shoe store. You're selling shoes, right? So what do you expect? Someone to walk in who's looking to buy diamonds? You have a shoe store? The guy's coming in looking for... Do you have diamond necklaces? No, you have a shoe store. That's what he sells. He sells shoes. This guy, goes, you go into a shoe, you buy it. So I say, if you're not snua, so it's a guy who's buying, not snua. So he's buying the animals. He's buying the animal. He's an animal. Animals buy animal. Spiritual people buy spiritual things. Animals buy animals. So now two years later, you're all upset? That he's having an affair with the girl in the office? That's what you sold him. That's who you are. You sold him the frame. He bought the frame. He didn't even look at the picture. So don't tell me the two guys, that the two girls who are not, who are not snua, they're not going to get any attention. You're right, they're not going to get any attention from those guys. But they'll get attention from the right guys. That's my speech on sneers. How it falls into the speech it doesn't. I just put it in there. But that's what happened. That's happened. This happened this past Shabbos, and it's, it's the truth. People don't appreciate the painting. They're so busy their whole life. They're so busy with the frame. They come up to Shemayim after 120 years, and Hashem's like, no. So show me what you painted. 
and they're like, well, I didn't really paint much. I didn't learn. I didn't, it wasn't spiritual. But you should see the frame, Hashem. I got cars. I got money. I got, I got power. I got covet. I got beauty. Where's the picture? Does anyone ever put up on their wall an empty frame? Did you ever walk into someone's house and as a piece of furniture you saw on the wall an, a frame without anything in it? No. That's what happens when you come to the next world and you're busy the whole time in this world with your frame. You come up to the next world and like we see a frame but we don't see a painting. Where do you hang this? How many people are busy their whole life with the frame? And this is what happened in this fight. In this fight, it wasn't a mochama, a physical fight, where he was trying to kill him. He knew that he wasn't trying to kill him. His objective was avak. His objective was to take the beauty out of being a Jew, to take the beauty out of lighting candles, the beauty out of being a tznuah, the beauty of being of doing mitzvahs. We don't feel that we're beautiful because we're Jews. We might be beautiful if we're physically beautiful. We don't feel like it's a... I never heard someone describe Judaism as a beautiful religion. It's a beautiful religion. You sit around a Shabbos table. That's beauty. Sukkot is beauty. Chanukah and Purim and Pesach and Shavuos and mitzvahs and lighting candles. That's beauty. The Satan said, I'm going to take that beauty away. How does one take beauty away from silver or from beautiful piece of furniture? Dust. Dust doesn't destroy your furniture. Dust doesn't destroy your silver. It just takes its shine, its glimmer, it takes its beauty. It dulls the beauty of what it's on. That's what dust does. This fight was about avak. It wasn't, I'm going to destroy you. It's, I'm going to take all these things that you do, and I'm going to make them dull. And the scary part is that the Sata knew that if we as Jews are going to find our religion and what we do dull, it will reach the throne of Hashem. And that the throne of God will become dull as it is in 2015. Atheism. I don't believe it. Why do I need, why do I need him? God in this generation is no longer beautiful. God becomes dull. When Judaism and all the mitzvahs that we do become dull, the Satan said the dust will go. You think, okay, Wallstein, okay, it's not so bad. You're right. I was brought up this way. I don't think Tznius is beautiful. I think it's important. I don't think Shabbos is beautiful. It's pretty boring. But I think it's, I think it's important. The Satan said, once you leave, lose the beauty of, of the mitzvos, it's going to affect your relationship with the one that sits on the throne. That dust will go all the way up to God. And that was the fight between the two of them. They fought over the dulling of, of Judaism. And what happens? What happens? Adalois HaShach, until Mashiach comes. It's going to be this fight. And he realized, the Sultan realized, he couldn't beat Yaakov. He couldn't take the beauty out of Yiddishkeit from Yaakov. Seir, Esau kept telling him, come live with me. 
What do you have? Bunch of children, come live with me. I'm a party animal. I'm the man. He saw like he couldn't beat Yaakov. Yaakov, you're not going to change him. Yaakov loved his learning and his Yiddishkeit. To him, was beautiful. But what he saw, he could have been him by He said, I can't get you, but I can get your kids. So he hit him in the thigh. He hit him in, he hit him in the groin. He said, I'm going to dislocate your children in 2015. They're going to be Jews. We're going to be dislocated from Yiddishkeit. It's the iPhone that's exciting. It's not, Yiddishkeit's not exciting. They're going to become dislocated. But he couldn't do it to Yaakov, but he did it to us. So what happens? We go on. Again, it doesn't say when he was fighting with him. When he was bringing up all this dust, he couldn't beat him, but he, he dislocated his thigh. But he said, It's time for me to go back to Shemaya. Let me go. So Yaakov said, No, 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 no. He dislocated my thigh. You're after my kids. I am not letting you go unless I get a bracha from you. You can't just do this and walk out of here. I need a bracha. But love. Mashmecha, so the Malach said, what's your name? What's your source? What's your Iker? Who are you? Yaakov, what are you? Vayomer Yaakov. I'm Yaakov, right? Vayomer, no. Lo Yaakov yema oichimcha. From now on, don't call yourself Yaakov. Ki im Yisrael. Ki sorisa im alokim im anoshim atuchal. Call yourself Yisrael. What happens when you're in a dust storm? You can't see straight. They have one. My daughter told me they just had one like a few weeks ago in Yerushalayim. For like three days from the, from the Judean desert. She called me for an episode. She said, she said, Tati, you cannot see the sky. Yerushalayim is brown. They went out. There was a dust storm coming in. For three days they had the dust storm. You could not see the sky. It was brown. You can't see clearly. The stuff gets in your eyes, but you also, you can't see clearly. So he said, I'm going to call you. I'm going to give you a bracha to fix this. Yisrael. What does Yisrael mean? Yashakel. Yosha means to see straight, straight, to be straight. Yosha Kel. My bracha to you is that you will always be able, the Jews will always have the kayach to be able to see straight to God. But it wasn't over. Yaakov said, listen, you asked me my name, I'm going to ask you your name. But Yishal Yaakov. Yaakov said to the Malach, tell me your name. Now we know that Yaakov knew he was the Satan. We know that Yaakov knew that he was the Tsar, the angel of Esau. What are you asking him his name for? Why are you asking him his name? You know his name. What he's asking him is, what's your source? A person's name is who you are. There are many people who know how to read names. I know a little bit how to read names. You read a person's name, you know already what their, what their struggle is. Rifkas have, they have certain struggles. Dinas have other struggles. Adinas have other struggles. Rachels have other struggles. Leahs have other struggles. Depending on what your name is. My Rebbe always says, Zachar, my name is Zachariah Shimon. Zachariah Shimon. He said, I knew you'd be a speaker. Like, how do you know I'd be a speaker? He says, Zachariah spells Zachar Hashem. And when people hear you, they should remember Hashem. Shimon means to listen. Because it's in your name that people are going to listen to you. And you're going to talk about God. You tell it to me all the time, Rabbi Gamaliel. So a person's name is their source. So he asked the Satan, Mashmecha, I know who you are, you're Esav, you're the Satan, you're the Yetzirah, What's your source? What makes you tick? What's your kayach? What's your strength? Mashemecha, what are you? What, what is your name? So the Malach answered him, I'm not telling you. Why are you asking me my name, Yaakov? Why are you asking me my source? 
You let him go. Why'd you let you go? He said, I'm not letting you go until you tell me your name. I'm not letting you go until you tell me your name. Then he asked him his name. And he says, why are you asking me my name? And he, and he lets him go. You sure you're not going to let him go until he tells you your name? He got away without telling you what his source is. Chutzpah. And why did Jacob let him go? Jacob said, I'm not letting you go until you tell me your name. And we know he wasn't Jewish. When you ask a Jew a question, he answers you with a question. What's your name? Why are you asking my name? But this was Esau's Malach. He wasn't Jewish. So that's not an excuse. Why did he let him go? He asked him a question. And why didn't the Malach answer him? The Malach asked Yaakov, what's your name? What's your source? He said, Yaakov. Now he's in turn, he says, now you tell me your name. He goes, no, why are you asking my name? Okay, bye, have a good day. He let him go. Fantastic answer. Fantastic answer. No, 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 no. He answered the question. He asked him his name, and he answered the question. He said, the sultan said, you want to know my name? My name is... Please tell me your name. Vayomi said, My name is Why Ask Questions. Nike, just do it. Don't ask about consequence. Don't think about the future. Just do it. Party. You'll worry about it later. Whatever you're going to do, do chuba when you're 100. You want to know the name of the Satan? Why ask questions? Lishmi, that's my name. Yaakov said, okay. Now you can go. Why ask questions? Who created the world? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? What's the consequence of what I'm doing? What am I planning to do? What's my plan? What am I doing here? What did I accomplish today? You know, before a person goes to sleep, the Chabot Chaim says, you have to think about what you want to accomplish tomorrow. Did you accomplish today what you said you were going to accomplish yesterday? You have all these questions that you're supposed to ask. The Sultan's like, don't ask! Eat what you want, do what you want, watch what you want, listen to what you want, say what you want. Lama Zatisha, don't ask so many questions. Just Nike, just party. Just do it. That's the power of the Sultan. The opposite of the Sultan is Chacham. The opposite of the Rasha is Haraya Sanailan. The person that thinks about consequence. Really, in all my teachings and Chinuch, the difference between kids and adults, between teenagers or younger kids and adults, is only one thing. Just one thing. When you're an adult, you think about the consequence of your actions. You're a mature person, you're like, well, if I, if I lose this kind of money, then I don't have the investment. If I invest this kind of money, if I do this, then every action we learn in physics, every action has a reaction. You don't, you don't think about that as a kid. As a kid, you just do whatever you want. Ah, I'll go out without a coat. You're going to catch a cold. Ah, I'm not going to catch a cold. I'm the only guy that goes out without a coat that won't catch a cold. You're going to catch a cold. He doesn't care. He runs out anyway. You're going to fall. Ah, it doesn't matter. Kid, kids don't think about the future. Ezuhu chacham. An adult, a smart person, he sits down and thinks about my action. What's the reaction that's going to happen? How, how is this, you know, it's very sad. My father died when he was 67 years old. Very, very young. 17 years ago. He'd be 83, 84 today. Okay? He didn't see my grandchildren. He didn't see any of my grandchildren. He didn't see any of my children get married. Okay? 
He died very, very young. I was with him when he was diagnosed. He was sitting by the doctor, I'll never forget it, in this big hospital, I think it was Memorial. And his, his um, test came back. And the doctor said to Mr. Walton, I'm really sorry, but it came back that you have esophageal cancer. Esophageal cancer is a very aggressive cancer. You can't really operate. You can't take someone's esophagus out. And if you do, it's a crazy operation. It's, not, it's almost impossible to do. And my father was sitting there, and he asked him, he was, and he was diagnosed, he died three months later, so it's not like years he had it. He said, where do you get esophageal cancer from? The doctor said, the, the highest reason for getting esophageal cancer is smoking. Because when you smoke, it's your esophagus, your lungs, and your mouth, and your tongue, and your, all those different cancers. He said, the, the, like 70%, I don't remember the number, 70% of esophageal cancer comes from smoking. My father says, doctor, I stopped smoking when I was 30. It was 37 years ago. Stop smoking from one day to the next. My father was very strong. He went to the doctor. They did a, he was coughing. They did a lung, uh, in those days, an x-ray. He put, the doctor put a normal, a normal lung up on the, on the white, you know, on the light board. And then he put my father's and he put them next to each other. The normal lung had, has white in it. My father's had, was all black. Cause he was in the army and he was smoking filterless cigarettes, camel. Straight smoke right into your lungs. So when he showed that to my father, my father said, done. I'm not smoking anymore. Stop from one day to the next. He said, then he's out, he went outside and he saw the doctor smoking outside. He said, Michigan. Michigan now. He said, you can't get, get Musa from a guy who does it himself, right? But he stopped. So he's sitting there, my father, and he says to the guy, I don't understand. It's like 37 years I stopped. How could you say it's from smoking? And the doctor said to my father, Mr. Wallstein, you see, we don't know when that, that, um, cell becomes a cancer cell. It could have happened when you were 25, it could have happened when you were smoking, but many times it becomes cancerous, that cell, but it sits. And it's dormant. It just sits. It sleeps. And then all of a sudden it wakes up. He said, but there's no question that that cell became a cancer cell while you were still smoking. So stopping 30 years ago didn't help. 37 years didn't help. And I remember my father, he turned to me. He was a very smart man. He said, the sins of my youth I'm paying for now. The person who thinks about the consequence. He was young. He didn't realize. And he didn't, they didn't even know. There was no warning. In those days, it was in the 40s and the 40s, in the army in the 40s. He was born in the 30s, so he, 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 they didn't, they thought that cigarette smoking was good for you. They thought it was good for you because it took care of your nerves. There was no warnings, there was nothing. So it's not like he did it on purpose, he didn't know. I remember he turned to me and he goes, Zechariah, the sins of your youth, you pay for them. That's the difference between an adult and a child. An, an adult has an understanding that with the Satan, the Satan's name, just do it. Don't worry about it. Don't ask any questions. That's the Maisa Satan. So my bracha to everyone in this room, you should talk to be healthy for sure. Amen. Say amen. Mm-hmm. Well, on top of that, you shouldn't be lonely. Amen. amen. And on top of that, the biggest bracha, and I, I give it all the time, is that you shouldn't have dust in your eyes. You should always have clarity to know the difference between good and bad. Maybe we'll see Bashiach from Harry You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.